Coming up on Tech Nation, what we lose if we go to driverless cars. Not what we get, but what we lose. I speak with Matthew Crawford about his book, Why We Drive, Toward a Philosophy of the Open Road. Then Yoki Slonim from Anima Biotech tells us how to go from DNA to producing proteins and what can go wrong. Anima's ability to look down at this very level yields new insights into what's really happening. It can also tell you whether your collagen treatment is actually making your skin more youthful. All this and more coming up on this week's Tech Nation. Let's take five with Moira Gunn. This is Five Minutes. In 2013, with the iPhone just six years old, futurist Alex Pang wrote The Distraction Addiction, getting the information you need and the communication you want without enraging your family, annoying your colleagues, and destroying your soul. At the same time, I noticed nobody complains about standing in line anymore. That's true. And I think that's an example of the ways in which technologies can help make our lives easier. Though the problem that I think we often have is when those uses start to creep into other contexts, places where we should be uh, sort of paying attention to kids or people at the dinner table or our work. When you add up all the time spent interacting with devices, that comes out to about four months a year. And Granted, some of that time is, is multitasking, right? You're checking your email while you're watching TV. Um, it does not, however, include games, which, depending on who you are, can range from zero days to the whole rest of the year. But it's not just about time, of course. It's also about the number of interactions you have. Uh, or if there are lots of people who check email you know, three dozen times a day. Um, but it's also... 36 times a day they check their email. Yes, 36 times a day, you know, or to pull it out a stoplight when you get bored at a meeting, those times add up. It's really pretty amazing. But it's also about the way in which these technologies kind of insinuate themselves into literally our bodies. You know, there's this phenomenon called phantom cell phone syndrome, which is the feeling of your cell phone going off, you know, buzzing, even though you don't have it in a pocket or on your body. Ringtones are, of course, designed to be noticed. Um, they are often designed also to sort of play in a way that interrupts your attention. This is, after all, you know, the purpose of an alarm or a ring. And the downside of that is when you're overexposed to them, when they work too effectively, they can do too good a job of breaking the flow of your attention and forcing you to spend you know, several minutes getting back on task, even after you've had maybe only a very, very short phone call. I mean, you speak of the, the Buddhist concept of monkey mind, everyday, undisciplined, jittery mind. Lots of people feel that way when they're off purpose. And not only that, I'm thinking of all kinds of things, and I'm feeling all kinds of things. And the feelings then take me to other places as well. Mm -hmm. And I think that the idea of the monkey mind is valuable because it reminds us that this kind of problem is actually a very, very old one. You know, even though smartphones are only, what, six or seven years old now, they have an, an incredibly short time gone from being novelties to being part of our everyday life. It is 
easy to think of the problem of electronic distraction as an incredibly new thing. But what the monkey mind, which is an ancient idea, tells us is that it's not just our devices, but ourselves that sort of are at issue. That part of what's going on is that these devices are really good at tapping into a natural ability we have to self-distract, to free associate, to jump from one thing to another. You know, and however, the other important thing that sort of the long history of the monkey mind teaches us is that there are ways of dealing with the problem of self-distraction, of worldly distraction, that are very, very old. You know, Buddhism is 2,500 years old, and contemplative practices in Christianity, in Islam, in Judaism, have developed over the course of you know, thousands of years. These problems really aren't new, and we also don't live in a world in which there are no solutions, you know, in which you have to give up the idea that you can have time to yourself, time to concentrate, time to focus, that there are ways of dealing with this that we can learn to adopt or adapt for modern purposes. At the time of this 2013 interview, futurist Alec Pang was talking about his book, The Distraction Addiction. He has since gone on to write Rest, How to Get More Done by Working Less. So I guess this means put down your phone and take a nap. I'm all for it. I'm Moira Gunn. This is 5 Minutes. 5 Minutes is produced at the studios of KQED-FM in San Francisco. 5 Minutes is a production of Tech Nation Media. I'm Paul Lancourt. From San Francisco, I'm Moira Gunn, and this is Tech Nation. Today on Tech Nation, I speak with Matthew Crawford about his ode to driving and what we lose with driverless cars. He's here today with Why We Drive, toward a philosophy of the open road. Then Yoki Slonim, the CEO of Anima Biotech, talks about why we can't treat all diseases with our present pharmaceuticals and an approach where we might do better. Tech Nation is underwritten in part by MindK, a global software development force in a world where every business can be global, on the web at mindk.com. And now, Matthew Crawford. Well, Matthew, welcome to Tech Nation. Thanks for having me. You write, uh, life often feels overspecified, fully modeled and determinate, but the road has a dicey quality to it. Well, you know, you you get behind the wheel, you're never quite sure what you're going to come across, especially in a road trip, you know, where you're going someplace you've never been before. But even, you know, just stepping out onto a sidewalk, in an urban sidewalk, there's a kind of serendipity when there's some slack in the plan and you just kind of throw yourself into the world with faith. And I think those experiences of serendipity and kind of being open to chance, or they feel a little bit more scarce lately, I think. And I think the language for articulating their value has kind of fallen from common use. Well, of course, we're hurtling headfirst into driverless cars, which uh, you call one instance of a wider shift in our relationship 
with the physical world in which demands of competence give way to a promise of safety and convenience. I guess that makes the the open road a little less dicey, hey? Right. Well, it's, I mean, I guess the the point is to make it completely predictable, uh, free of surprises. Um, you might say that one point of automation is to, um, re, you know, eliminate the need uh, for um, sort of trust and replace it with machine-generated certainty. So, I mean, clearly we're talking about sort of metaphysical dispositions toward the world and and how much you want to be sort of fully in control of your environment. Well, it's more than that. I mean, we do have some science here, which you've given us, on self-locomotion and self-mobility. What are they and why are they important? Yeah, well, I, I got interested in this first just watching, for example, my young dog go tearing around the yard you know, making great looping circles and sharp cuts for no apparent reason. Um, her name is Lucy, and she has a definite need for speed. And these eruptions seem both to sort of express her joy and to cause it. And so I started digging a bit, and it seems like there is a connection between movement and um, some of some of our higher capacities as animals. So it, as it turns out, it's when a infant starts um, moving for themselves, in other words, crawling, rather than being carried passively, that the hippocampus starts developing and we start developing a map of the world. Oh boy, this all, let's see, I could mention the kitten study, which is sort of a classic in embodied cognition, where pairs of kittens were raised in the dark, except for a couple hours every day when they were put on a carousel where one kitten is allowed to move along the uh, circumference and also in little epicycles uh, along the circumference and in and out. And the second kitten is carried passively by the actions of the first, and it's so contrived that they receive identical visual stimulation. But the kitten that's carried passively fails to develop visually guided paw placement, fails to um, learn to avoid a visual cliff. There's all kinds of um, debilities it suffers simply for not having been actively um, controlling its own movements. And then there's, um, there's research into how GPS kind of makes our brains atrophy uh, because we're no longer actively forming a model of the world and of our route through it. So I think there's something else at stake as well, which is something like um, a disposition to find your way through the world by the exercise of your own powers. And uh, that's that passivity I was talking about. You've written a lot about, you know, the world and time space and, and, and uh, you know, who we are as humans. And, and when you're driving, even with cruise control, uh, you're actually doing something manual. And you expand on this to what we physically do. You feel more intellectually engaged doing manual work than this so-called knowledge work, which is so much of our economy today. Yeah, so my first book got into that. It was Shop Class as Soulcraft, and it was really an attempt to make sense of my own work history. 
um, where I'd often felt more intellectually challenged doing skilled trade work than in some of the desk jobs I'd had that were ostensibly, you know, knowledge work. And so this didn't, you know, just didn't fit the kind of official story we tell ourselves about work, where we have this dichotomy of knowledge work versus manual work. And the more I uh, sort of got curious about this mismatch between my own experience and the official story, it led into this whole history of the assembly line and the basic dynamic of capitalism to try to separate thinking from doing so that you can concentrate the genuine knowledge work in an ever smaller elite while uh, the rest of us essentially become clerks to carry out the plan that's hatched somewhere else. And one nice thing about the skilled trades is that they resist that separation of thinking from doing. Um, you know, there's, uh, it's very different from, say, the assembly line. So people often don't understand that when I'm talking about skilled work, it's, it's almost the opposite of the assembly line. So a plumber, an electrician, a mechanic, what they do can never be reduced to simply following a recipe or a set of uh, rules because it requires improvisation. Um, every physical circumstance, you know, varies in, in different ways. So you're of um, figuring it out. And I think that's one thing that we want in a job is to be, uh, you know, mentally engaged. And yet no one ever tells the mechanic, hey, every 15 minutes you better take a walk or every you know, or you better get up and stretch. It's like they're moving around, they're hauling things. Yeah. It's like it's this knowledge work that keeps you keeps mm. you in one place, not moving. And yet there's a great deal of difference between knowledge work, which is requiring you to do analytics, to really think, to see patterns, to do yeah. that, and knowledge work that is just really boring and ought to be and, out of it. And dumbed down, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. And you mentioned the sort of moving around. I, ironically, just in the last few weeks, I've had to do a whole lot of computer stuff, um, basically getting ready to do you know, stuff like this, sort of book, book tour publicity. And my hands are killing me from all the computer stuff. And this is after, you know, decades of using tools that are ostensibly more dangerous. You know, I'm welding more days than I'm not and using all kinds of you know, hellacious tools that want to cut your hands off. But, I, you know, I've never had a real problem until <laughs> I've spent so many hours on the damn uh, laptop. You are listening to Tech Nation. I'm Moira Gunn, and my guest today is Matthew Crawford. He's a senior fellow at the Institute for Advanced Studies and Culture at the University of Virginia. You may know him from his earlier books, Shop Class as Soulcraft and The World Beyond Your Head. He's here today with Why We Drive, toward a philosophy of the open road. Well, I've always liked to figure out where my guests are coming from. So I learned you went to UC Santa Barbara. You know, there's a fun party school, you know, near the ocean, great yeah. weather, palm trees. But you were a physics major. So you might not have noticed the ocean and the palm trees. Oh, uh, no, that's why I went there. Oh, there you go. There you yeah. go. Youth, youth attracts uh, palm trees and great weather. Um, uh, and But then you went on to Chicago, and you got your Ph.D. not in physics, but in philosophy, political philosophy, specializing yeah. in ancient political thought. So what do you study when you study ancient political <laughs> thought? 
Well, you know, I, I tried to get a handle on basically the whole history of, uh, <laughs> of thought. That sounds rather immodest, and, and it was. But specialized, yeah, in sort of um, ancient Greek thought, just because it was the most rich and sort of fresh and surprising body of thought that I had encountered. And it was tremendously exciting. It gave... Um, I felt like for the first time I was getting a genuinely different and critical perspective on the present. You point out the safer we become, the more intolerable any remaining risk appears. That can't be new. Well, it seems to be a kind of progressive thing where, and maybe it's connected to what we were talking about at the very beginning about um, sort of trying to eliminate contingency from life. Um, but I think, I mean, and you also see this, I think there's a class difference somewhat um, where the sort of the bourgeois bohemian uh, is especially keen to, you know, with the helmets and everything and their kids are child rearing practices tend to take their bearings from safety increasingly. And I think this, it's a sensibility, but I think it also makes us more susceptible to um, kind of bureaucratic grasping that invokes safety, um, often um, making rules that are at odds with our natural reasonableness. And it's in the gap uh, between them that you can collect re revenue and in the form of fines and whatnot. So I'm talking, for one thing, about speed limits, and we can get into that. Um, but my the, sort of the, the general point is that um, I think you often have entities collecting rents from perfectly reasonable behavior and then using the ideology of safety as a lever for moral intimidation to pursue ends other than safety. Ooh, well, you're going to have to explain that. Yeah, the people okay. People are shaking well, their heads out here. <laughs> <laughs> Think of the children. Um, <laughs> Think of the adults. We don't have any children yeah. listening here. <laughs> okay. Well, let's take speed limits. Um, and we can also talk about red light cameras, which is one of my favorite topics. So, um, as it turns out, the, the speeds we actually drive is not very sensitive to the posted speed limit. So if you reduce the speed limit by 15 miles an hour, what you observe is that people reduce their speed by about one to two miles an hour. That's the 85th percentile of drivers. In other words, 85% uh, of drivers are reducing by about that much. And so that presents an opportunity uh, for enterprising um, bureaucrat who wants to um, collect some revenue. So, for example, the George Washington Parkway in Washington, D.C., the lanes are built to a 55-mile-an-hour standard. So there are lane width standards that correspond to the speed limit. But the speed limit is 45 miles an hour, and so it's a notorious speed trap. I guess my 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 overarching point is that um, we are kind of naturally reasonable in our assessment of risks for the most part. And, um, and when the rules are put at odds with that, that's sort of where officialdom tends to feed. And um, 
if you want to get into red light cameras, let's do. Oh, let's. You've been dying to get in. I don't <laughs> want to deny you. Actually. Yeah. Well, everything you thought is true. Um, so the the District of Columbia um, in what you know Washington um, took in close to two hundred million dollars in a single fiscal year from automated traffic enforcement. So that's red light cameras and speed cameras. And so, so what intersections are they putting these up at? It's not intersections that have a history of accidents. Rather, it's intersections that have the greatest flow, the greatest volume of flow, that is. And furthermore, when the red light cameras go up, the duration of the yellow light goes down. Ooh, a trick. Is, oh, yeah. This is, in every city this has been investigated, and um, this has been the case. And there's been some fantastic investigative journalism, most notably by the Chicago Tribune. The transportation manager was getting a bribe of $2,000 for every camera that went up. But this, this yellow light business is very important. So as it turns out, if you um, increase the duration of a yellow light, from three seconds to just three and a half seconds, it has a big uh, impact on the accident rate. It's very sensitive to this. It's called the amber time by traffic engineers. Um, so, but instead of, and so that's kind of free safety that you can get, but free safety doesn't seem to be nearly as attractive as free money. And once you point all this out, as the Tribune did to the Chicago authorities, like definitively, this is increasing accidents. Um, they don't want to talk about it because they've now gotten hooked on that revenue. And it's a kind of ratchet mechanism. It's very difficult to go backwards and give up that revenue. Well, I thought when I started reading this book, this we were, we were talking about why I drive and why you drive, and 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 that is certainly included in it. I never really thought about the relationship between the the roads and you and the society you happen to be driving through. We all know about the autobahn in in Germany, and you can drive as fast as you want, but it's there's more to it than that. Yeah. What's striking is that you have this enormous range of speeds, which is precisely, you know, what you would think would make it especially dangerous. The traffic fatality rate in Germany is actually quite a bit lower than the United States. But I think what makes it possible for people to share the road um, with such a range of speeds is that they have very robust social norms sort of rules of etiquette, which is not quite the same as simple rule following. It's more like being acculturated into um, practices that would be hard to fully spell out in rules, um, which, which allow them to sort of mutually accommodate one another. And I think you see something similar to that in the U.S. at an intersection, especially when the traffic lights go out during a storm and we sort of you know, it feels like waking up from a long dream and you realize that we can actually work this out for ourselves. But what we're doing um, at an intersection, you know, say it's a four-way stop. Well, it's always, you know, it's often ambiguous who has the right of way, who got there first. Um, and so what do people do? They make eye contact. One person might wave the other through. 
there's almost a kind of body language of driving. And this works just fine for the most part. Um, it's a kind of improvisational, um, you know, spirit of cooperation. Now, it's interesting, Google had one of their self-driving cars pull up at a four-way stop intersection, and it stopped and waited for um, the other cars to come to a complete stop before rolling through. But, of course, that's not what we do, right? <laughs> we have this more kind of fuzzy kind of thing that we negotiate on the fly. So the Google car uh, just got paralyzed. It didn't know what to do. And it just kind of sat there and melted down. And it's interesting, the, uh, the chief Google engineer for driverless cars, he said that what he had learned from this is that human beings need to be less idiotic. <laughs> Good luck which, with that. <laughs> yeah, by which he meant they need to behave more like robots, right? So I think what's and what's interesting to me is that he was completely failing to see the form of intelligence that's on display at an intersection, which is this sort of social, socially realized form of intelligence. But if you're a computer engineer and you think that the mind is basically an inferior version of a computer, then, you know, this is the conclusion you draw. The, the other possible conclusion would be to say, well, human beings just need to get out of the way to pave the way for the robots and sort of step aside gracefully. And that gets us to um, the logic of automation seems to have this totalizing character to it, be precisely because humans and robots are a very awkward fit to share the road together. They're very different forms of intelligence. So it's a kind of all or nothing thing. Um, so you have to kind of wonder what what is the end point of that trajectory where we're kind of handing off um, ever more domains of life and accepting uh, this premise that we are incompetent, which tends to be self-fulfilling, right? Because our skills atrophy for lack of use, and that, which leads to calls for yet more automation. Well, in a completely different vein, but still talking about motorcycles, I didn't realize, like on the Tibetan plateau, that there were all these motorcycles, and they had little Tibetan rugs on their seats. What's up with that? Yeah, I was fascinated. I spent a month there. And so apparently... Um, so there are still a lot of nomadic herds people on the Tibetan plateau, and they shepherd their yaks from a summer camp to a winter camp. And traditionally, they used horses for that. But at some point, the small, you know, these are like 125cc motorcycles, mostly replaced the horse for that purpose. But, um, you know, the horses had rugs on them as saddles, and at some point, they decided, well, we're going to put rugs on our motorcycles, too. Um, you know, they have upholstered seats, just like motorcycles everywhere. But in Tibet, one puts a rug on one's mount, apparently. And I took it to be a kind of pointed bit of um, cultural remembrance and preservation, which is especially poignant in Tibet because... The country is being aggressively um, sort of assimilated into China as a matter of government policy. So 
you know, this is a discreet way for the Tibetans to kind of um, hold on to one of their inheritances. I've been speaking with Matthew Crawford, the author of Why We Drive, Toward a Philosophy of the Open Road. We'll talk more after a break. Podcasts of Tech Nation are available at NPR One, Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, and other podcast syndication outlets. Direct links are available at technation.com. In the second half of our show, I speak with Yoki Slonim, the CEO of Anima Biotech. How do our bodies go from DNA to making a protein? What could go wrong? And what's new that we might do about it today? Stay with us. Listening to Tech Nation, I'm speaking with Matthew Crawford, a senior fellow at the Institute for Advanced Studies in Culture at the University of Virginia. He's here today with Why We Drive Toward a Philosophy of the Open Road. You're talking about a wider view of sort of health where we can't overlook the simmering discontent, even self loathing that men, parentheses, especially, right parentheses, often suffer, often suffer in bourgeois society where the threat of physical harm is almost entirely absent. Are you really telling me that there needs to be a certain amount of danger, especially for men? Well, I do think that there is a kind of um, existential, I don't know, kind of question mark hovering over you that that a lot of men feel when they're not they're not sort of subject to physical challenge and this is a long this is a long story i mean going back you know teddy roosevelt talked about the need for kind of physical challenge um william james the psychologist had a famous essay called uh the moral equivalent of war, where he was he was um, looking for some activity that resembled war, but that, that wouldn't be you know bloody, 
because he recognized that the qualities of hardness and toughness were important and that they were at risk of atrophy under conditions of peace and prosperity. And I think you could see a similar kind of critique in the movie Fight Club, which was very popular. So it's speaking to this um, kind of this feeling of obsolescence of the male. You know, there are a set of things in our overanalyzed, overstudied, um, over-agreed upon society that we're not really, we haven't really put our finger on. Yeah. So in the in the book, Why We Drive, I have a chop, chapter called The Motor Equivalent of War, sort of a play on William James, where I talk about um, motorsport and its sort of warlike energies. Um, and what was striking to me, so I, you know, I went around to various um, sort of grassroots motorsport scenes in a anthropological kind of mood um, just to check it out. And um, one thing that struck me was the spirit of play. So it's, you know, some of this is pretty dangerous stuff. And um, it's a spirit of rivalry and friendship combined that's all about taking risks and, you know, prevailing over them through your own skill. Uh, So it was... um, it was almost the opposite of that spirit of safetyism. It was more, um, it was a kind of, um, I don't know. It's like a substitute for war, I guess. Well, you write a lot about various automotive subcultures. I looked everywhere, didn't see soccer moms, uh, but you did have, <laughs> put, you didn't put the soccer moms? There's an automotive subculture for you. But um, uh, you've got demolition derby, desert race, and uh, you've got, you know, a professional drifting circuit, which I didn't get, hair scramble, which happens in Virginia, adult so- yeah. soapbox derby. Um, what's a hair scramble? <laughs> Yeah, I wonder about the name. Does it come from like hair as in rabbit? I'm not sure because that's how it's spelled. That's how it's spelled. (laughs) Yeah. So a hair scramble is a race on motorcycles through the woods. And it's sort of a circuit. It might be like a, you know, three-mile circuit that you do five times or something like that. And there's different classes, everything from little kids, which is amazing. There's like these little six-year-olds on little motorcycles. Uh, on up, and quite a few women represented in the in the races as well. So at the start, they're not yet in the woods; they're in a big, sort of muddy, open pasture, and the horn goes off, and it's a mad rush to get to the first corner uh, first, because after you know the corner starts, it's very hard to pass. And so you know, there's sort of wheelies off the line, people going down in the mud. And there's no judge to declare a false start or, you know, a restart. It's just a bunch of um, sort of grown-ups doing it for themselves. And it's a very sort of unadministered scene. And that's one thing that was attractive uh, about it to me is sort of the spirit of um, people just, you know, working it out amongst themselves. Well, one of your sentences really appealed to me. It started, it starts... My bartender, Troy, you have a bartender? 
Yeah, don't you? <laughs> no, I don't know if I even know anybody who has a bartender. I feel oh, like well, it's I have like a PhD having... like you do, but I don't have a bartender. I really miss well, it's that. It's like having a good barber, having a good doctor, and at least as important as that would be a good bartender. Since you mentioned this, oh, my, my bartender, Troy, uh, related that a certain regular abruptly left his freshly drawn pint on the bar it ran out of there and could be seen driving slowly around the block several times. And then he came back in to uh, resume a leisurely conversation. And it turns out um, his wife had FaceTimed him and he thought it best to conduct the conversation from behind the wheel. <laughs> so, you know, this is just one of those everyday bits of domestic evasion um, that I think we all engage in. And, uh, you know, he didn't have a driverless car uh, shouting error messages at him for driving around uh, in a circle. <laughs> I have to say, I'm just, uh, there's all kinds of stuff in your book here. It's really pretty fascinating. Uh, yeah. <laughs> we go back to ancient Greece. We go up to the hair scramble. We go over to your bartender. And here's this thing. Actually, in ancient Greece, I was really amazed. I, I'm supposing I'm supposing this is an old word. Uh, the Greek word aporia, it means without a road. Uh, Ap aporia. Aporia. Yeah. And, uh, and what's your sensibility about it? What does it mean? Mm -hmm. Well, in the tradition of Socratic philosophy, um, it represents a moment pregnant with the arrival of something unlooked for, something you don't know what's coming. So uh, it's sort of thought that in any philosophical inquiry, there's a moment of aporia where you're kind of at a loss. And it's a moment of, of openness once you've kind of, um, I don't know, shed certain convictions you might have started with. And I just thought it was a lovely thing that the word literally means without a road. And so I invoke that word in the prelude of the book where I'm talking about riding a motorcycle off-road, I mean, literally without a road, where, you know, at a mere 15 miles an hour, I would be challenged to the very limit of my mental ability. I mean, there's all this stuff coming at you, just roots and rocks and fallen trees and creeks and mud. And those moments were sort of uh, some of the sweetest moments of feeling, I don't know, vindicated that I can think of where you kind of take a risk and it goes well. And now you feel like you're sort of, I don't know, entitled to take up space in the world. Maybe, I don't know, maybe I'm speaking to some anxiety I have that others don't about feeling, I don't know, unworthy or something. So in the pursuit of that feeling of vindication, I once had four trips to the emergency room and in the course of 12 <laughs> months, that's when I realized I was getting a little too old to be breaking bones. Yeah. Yeah. That's a little, you know, it's a good realization on your part, you know, Matthew. But I think aporia is very interesting for me collectively as a society, because we're at a point right now where there is no road ahead. We used to be able to argue mm -hmm. about which road. It's like, holy moly, we're going to have to create yeah. something totally new. And, you know, one step at a time, and we don't quite know 
what's going to happen. And, yeah. uh, and I think you're right. If we can navigate this, we will have a new confidence, not a lesser confidence, but if we mm. can get through some of this successfully, I think we can have confidence in ourselves and between ourselves, among ourselves for having mm. done it. Yeah, it does. It does kind of feel that way. So uh, kind of a, a theme that runs through the book, Why We Drive, is that of social trust. Um, so one reason I'm so impressed with the, you know, the intersection, especially, you know, if you go to like Rome, where it's, it looks like chaos, but it actually flows beautifully, is that it's a picture of people extending to one another a presumption of individual competence. And that, I think, is the basis for social trust. So I, I guess I'm looking to driving for clues um, that might uh, inform our hopes for the revival of trust more generally. So, you know, when you're on a motorcycle on a two-lane country road, leaned deep into a curve... Um, that's an acute moment of trust, right? There's only a line separating you from the oncoming lane where there could be a truck. And yet we routinely do this. So it's a kind of a, um, it's a phenomenon that I think can inform political theory. What, What are these small bore little practical activities where we still maintain that kind of social trust? And if we can understand what's going on there, uh, we might learn something of more general application. Have you ever driven in Buenos Aires? I have not. Have <gasps> you? you have to go there. You, you have to be book number two on your Why We Drive list. They have these huge boulevards, but it's not like all the lanes are on one side and, you know, something green's in the middle and the lanes going the other way are the other. They might be eight lanes wide. Um and uh, when you start out in the morning, you know, at one point, you know, you, you basically stay to the right, whether you're coming in either direction. But as the traffic fills up, it takes over lanes. And uh, so, you know, it started out with maybe four lanes of traffic coming in to Buenos Aires and four lanes going out. And after a while, more lanes are coming in. So you find people driving at you and, and like naturally you go back and forth. It's really exciting. <laughs> hmm. it sounds, yeah, it's crazy. It sounds very efficient as well. If sort of on the fly, we can mutually kind of work it out that, well, now this lane is going this way uh, without having it, you know, to be kind of a centralized um, decision to make it so regardless of what the actual flow demands. Well, as you put it, the animating question of your book is, what is so special about driving? Um, and and your answer is, is very simple. You know, what you were saying, you know, earlier, it's, you know, why we love to drive. It's this exercising one skill of being free and you're, you're in control mm-hmm. and it's you making these choices. And, um, and you're right. The ultimate demonstration of this, instead of just saying, let the computer do it, um, but of a human grabbing modern technology and bending it to his will was Captain Sully Sullenberger landing that airplane in the Hudson. Mm, yeah. I, you know, I remember that vividly. And I think the whole country was electrified the by world. that. Yeah. So for those who might have been living under a rock, uh, I think the 
there was a bird strike, so not one, but both engines got taken out by a bird. So now he's just coasting with an airliner full of people. He'd just taken off from, I think, LaGuardia. And... So there's a river down there, the Hudson River, and... It's uh, either that or Manhattan. Yeah. <laughs> Which one do you right. want to land in? <laughs> yeah, and I think the tower was telling him, do this, do that. And he's like, nah, I, I, we're on our own here. I'm, I'm, I'm doing this. And, um, I mean, he had to. And he landed it on the Hudson, and everybody got off, and nobody, nobody was hurt. But I think what, it's, um, what was so exciting about it is that here was a person kind of relying on their own wits, their own skill developed over many years. And it seemed like a counter image to the image that's been marked out for us uh, of a kind of just acceptance, a passive acceptance that the systems will take care of us. Um, So it was a... It was an ecce homo moment, to take a line from Shakespeare. Um, Here is a human being. Here is someone who um, is kind of rising to the occasion, right? And it's that rising to the occasion that I think um, goes against this um, premise of our incompetence, which is the animating premise of automation that human beings are terrible drivers that's the refrain so <clears throat> and as we said before it's a it's a premise that tends to become self-fulfilling as we cede ever more control um, to sort of big systems and our skills atrophy well matthew thank you so much for joining me i hope you'll come back and see me again This was a real pleasure. Thank you, Maura. My guest today is Matthew Crawford. His book is Why We Drive, Toward a Philosophy of the Open Road. It's published by HarperCollins. I'm Maury Ragun. You're listening to Tech Nation. Have you ever heard about a disease that was undruggable? I don't mean that we haven't got a drug for something. It's that the condition is something that our pharmaceuticals just don't do. We'll learn why today and a new approach that may change that and other treatments such as the promise of collagen to make your skin more youthful. Yoki Slonim is the CEO of Anima Biotech. Well, everybody knows now they have DNA and they also know that that DNA gets translated into proteins all over their body and all their cells, on their cells. Tell us about what's the step between your DNA that you got from mom and dad to proteins. Yeah, that's actually something that most people are not aware of. They know about the DNA and the proteins. They also know that most diseases are actually caused by problems with proteins, either too much or too little of the protein, or maybe the protein has been mutated, a mutation. So in between, there is a step called mRNA. It stands for messenger RNA. That is a step where cells actually take a copy of the DNA of a gene, it's called. A gene is actually like the instructions to produce a protein. There are 20,000 of those. And they actually copy them into something called mRNA. And that mRNA now is being translated into protein. It is translated by machines, small machines in the cells, about a million of them in each cell. And we have about a trillion cells in the body. 
huge number of those. And they translate the mRNA into protein. They actually walk along the mRNA, those machines, and they translate it into protein. That's what's happening in between. That sounds almost like you have an app on your phone. You've got to load the app. You hit it, and it starts to run. If you don't have the app on your phone, it's not going to run. And it has to process the program sitting in your smartphone. It doesn't just get there on its own. It's processing it. And that whole process then is executed by the MNRA. It's, it's actually the right analogy because there is like a software code, which is the mRNA. It's like the code. And now there is the processor. The ribosomes are like executing the code, the program. And as they go along this mRNA code, they produce the protein, the amino acids of the protein. Let's key on what you said earlier about disease. Too many proteins, too few proteins, uh, a misstructured protein, if you will. Uh, Can we see that in the process of it being created? So this is actually where everybody's in the dark. Why is disease happening? What caused the disease? When you think about that question, for almost all the diseases out there, we don't know. But over the years, there was this, uh, I would say, idea that is called a target protein. Target protein is a protein that we kind of have an understanding that it has a major role in the disease and usually is the one that is out of control. Like... Once that protein is overproduced or underproduced, this is where disease happens. The diseases have names that many people know about, but they don't know what these proteins are. This is not something that you usually know. They have code names, all kinds of strange code names, those proteins, about 20,000 of them. And really what happens when there is a problem with a protein, overproduced or underproduced, The drugs, what they try to do today, actually they know how to deal with only one thing, overproduce, okay? If there is too much of a protein, the pills that you take, they are called small molecules technically, but they are just pills. They are small molecules that are uh, chemically engineered, and they bind, they attach themselves to the surface of that protein, and they neutralize it. They change its chemistry, and then the the protein cannot do the harmful things that are caused by being over in the amount. There is too much of the protein, the cells don't like it, everything gets out of control. So this is what drugs do. The problem is that most of the proteins out there, they don't have those pockets on their surface where those molecules can attach. And then those proteins are called undruggable proteins. But they're only undruggable given the technology of today. Right. And then what happens is that the pharmaceutical industry is saying, we're sorry, guys, we don't have a drug for that disease. And we can't make a drug for that disease. We cannot make because the protein itself is like, you know, even a cat cannot climb on a wall, on a flat wall. Okay, that's the situation. There is no place to attach the drug to the protein. But we had a different idea. When we started the Anima, we actually looked at that intermediate step, which is the mRNA, and that fascinating thing, which is all those ribosomes producing from the mRNA proteins. And those are a lot of little steps all along the way. Yeah, the the ribosomes actually are 
about a million in each cell. So they can actually move quite fast to produce those mRNAs into proteins. But we found a way to visualize that process with light pulses. That's the most fascinating thing ever. We are introducing into the cells, this is actually in the lab, it's not in the body, but in the lab when we have like a, a sample of the disease in cells, we introduce molecules, special molecules that are called tRNA. Technically, these are involved in the process of the production of the mRNA into protein. We label them, we attach fluorescent colors to them. When we do that, when they sit in the ribosome, they glow light. They emit and broadcast light pulses. And all of a sudden, with that technology, we can visualize in images that look like the Milky Way on a cloudy night. It's quite fascinating. You see where, when, and how much of the protein, the target protein that is causing the disease, where, when, and how much of it is being made in the cells in real time. So the more translation going on between the DNA and the protein, the more light is emitted. Exactly. It becomes a way to visualize the overproduction or the underproduction of the protein, which is the disease. All of a sudden, you are seeing the disease happening. This led us, this technology that originated actually um, in our work over a decade with the University of Pennsylvania. And afterwards, we actually did 17 additional scientific collaborations with universities. After that stage, we decided to start a company that is a drug discovery company, drug discovery platform company based on this technology. And the idea is very simple. When we get a disease, we ask what is the target protein that is either overproduced or underproduced. Then we visualize it happening with our technology. And now the missing step was like this. Let's, not, let's now do what is called screening. Screening is like a systematic search of molecules that are potentially drugs for the disease. Okay, You take a library, it's called a library of molecules, and you try them. But we have a unique way now to try them that would actually provide a new strategy. We look for molecules that increase or decrease the light. If they decrease the light, this means that they are decreasing the production of that protein. If they increase the light, it means that they increase the production of the protein. So all of a sudden, it's like seeing the disease happening and looking for the drug that will actually cure it. This is what it does. But it visualizes it in real time with light pulses, and it provides a new strategy against all those undruggable diseases where the protein itself is not a good target. It's hard target. It's undruggable target. But you go back to the mRNA before it's made, and this is where you actually can find the drug. Not everything we want to do has to do with diseases. Some of them have to do with the unfortunate case of the human condition. We all age. Something that happens as you age is you lose collagen in your skin. Collagen is a protein. How do we figure out if some of these creams and all the things that they offer us, how do we know we could be producing more collagen in our skin, which would return it to its 
its youthful splendor. How do we know that? Can we use something like this? It's it's actually an amazing and amazingly um, interesting thing for people because this is the most visible example of the body stopping to produce a protein. Collagen is underproduced. Now, for many people, aging is a disease. They consider it. <laughs> well, that's they true. Co- yeah, they consider it as a disease, and they want a drug. They want something. But all the drugs out there today, as I said in the beginning, they know how to deal with the case of a protein that is overproduced. And then they go, they attach to the protein, they neutralize it, disarming it. What if the protein is missing or is underproduced? There is no concept. Again, with our strategy, our technology, actually, for that protein, specifically collagen, that the skin stopped producing, we actually identified molecules that are increasing the production of the collagen. They are increasing it from within the cells, not like the cosmetic creams that are just on the top and are actually just making your skin, as they tell you, glow. (laughs) <laughs> that's, they, that's actually what they're yeah, doing. <laughs> they, they, they just make your skin glow. But we actually, with our technology, we make the production of the collagen glow inside the cells. This is what we see. So the cells actually, with, that, with these actually uh, molecules that we discovered, the cells start to produce more collagen. So this is actually an anti-aging, an anti-aging drug. This is what it can do, definitely. And by the way, this is also of great importance in other applications where you need the body to produce more collagen. For example, wound healing. The way that wounds actually are healing is by creating scar tissue. What is scar? Is the formation, the production of collagen. If you could actually encourage the cells to produce more collagen, you are also looking at a potential application for wound healing, which is very important. This is a lot to take in, Yoki. We've really learned a lot here. I'm, I'm, I'm hoping that you'll come back and see us again, will you? I would love to. Thank you very much. Yoki Splodum is the CEO of Anima Biotech. More information is available at animabiotech.com. For Tech Nation, I'm Moira Gunn. Tech Nation and its regular segment, Biotech Nation, are produced at the studios of KQED-FM in San Francisco. Executive producer is Matt Gardner. The director of technical production is Monte Carlos. And audio engineers include Howard Gelman, Seal Muller, and Larry Upton. Our theme music was composed by Ann Nochtrieb Zessiger and Robert Powell, with title creation provided by NameLab Incorporated of San Francisco. Program information and Internet audio is available on the web at technation.com. Tech Nation and Biotech Nation are productions of Tech Nation Media. I'm Paul Lancor.